Welcome. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you so much. Well, it's great to be with you. Wonderful worship. That was really cool about going to Mexico. Uh, you know, some people come into your lives and uh, quickly fade. Other people come into your lives and make deep footprints into your heart, and you will never be the same. And that's my relationship with Terry. I'm deeply grateful to be here. Uh, I actually was the first youth pastor on the campus, the Irvine campus, when I had hair, not much hair, but um, when I had hair. And so the Mariners world is no stranger to me. In fact, Kathy and I and my daughters go to Mariners Mission Viejo. We're going to talk about perseverance today. And uh, one of the reasons why we're talking about perseverance is because that's a message that I need to hear over and over and over again. Uh, my wife and I met the very first day at Azusa Pacific University. We're actually in a room somewhat like this. I was in the nerd section back there where you people are. You know who you are. Go ahead. Yeah, that's you. And, uh, and Kathy was in the second row, and she was absolutely gorgeous, and I couldn't keep my eyes off of her. And I said to my two new nerd friends, see that girl down there? And they said, yes, she's beautiful. And I said, one day I will take her out on a date. And they looked at her beauty, and they looked at me, and they... They laughed, right. You don't even know me and you said that, my goodness. Um, but they did, they laughed. But one week after uh, college graduation, her college graduation, we got married. So there you go. And it wasn't really an easy first year. Now, Kathy and I both came from classic dysfunctional families. My father was an alcoholic. He actually lived in Sill Beach, my mom and dad. And um, my uh, grandfather died of cirrhosis of the liver. My Two brothers who are alcoholics. I have two brothers who are alcoholics. One is not. I have, um, uh, on Kathy's side, just basically a, a, a real weird dysfunctional family. We won't get into that. So when Kathy and I got married, we thought it was going to be easy because we had become Christians, but it was not easy. And in fact, the very first week and then the very first year, we started struggling with our marriage and conflict, and I was becoming more like my family, not in terms of alcoholism, but just in some of their weirdness, and Kathy was becoming more like her family and their, her weirdness. And, um, I mean, I was a youth pastor at a church called Yorba Linda Friends Church in Yorba Linda, and we would argue on the way to, to youth group, and then I would talk on the joys of a Christian family. That was kind of hypocritical. <laughs> About the first year, we decided that we would coin a phrase because we wanted to be different. And I'm not putting my family down. Actually, they're pretty neat people. They were functional alcoholics, not you know, horrible people by any means. And we decided that we would become a part of what we call the transitional generation. What that means is the Bible says that you inherit the sins of a previous generation onto the third and fourth generations all throughout the Old Testament. And for Kathy and I, we realized we were inheriting this at least sin bent of our previous generations, and it wasn't working well for us. So we made a commitment about one year into marriage we've been married 38 years, that we would try to break the chain of dysfunction and that we were either going to recover or we were going to repeat. And for us, we decided that we would recover. And I want to say to you right now that that's one of the most wonderful and most difficult things we've ever attempted in our life, maybe the most important other than our relationship with God. And so we've attempted these last few years, a number of years, to become this transitional generation. My daughter, Christy, fast-forwarding the story, was 17. She's now in her 20s, and she was a spitfire, still kind of can be, and strong-willed and whatnot, and she and Kathy were in this sort of argument. Actually, it wasn't really an argument, because Kathy wasn't arguing. It was just Christy who was, you know, telling her mom what she thought about her, and I was being the passive-aggressive husband and father. I was in the other room listening, and there were even times, I'll be honest with you, that, that Christy would say something, like, 
boy, that's kind of true about Kathy, but I wouldn't say it that way, Christy. <laughs> Finally, Christy escalated. I did what I should have done as a dad and a father, and I jumped in, and I said, Christy, you go to your room. And I thought she was going to say, hey, my bad dad, I apologize. I was escalating. Instead, she turned on me. Well, now I'm mad because now she's talking about me. I said, Christy, honestly, go to your room right now. So she walks out our kitchen door. She slams the door. The sign that says, bless this house, goes crooked. <laughs> and I follow her up. I took some breathing exercises, prayed, and walked in. And I said, Christy, I want to talk to you. And she wanted to keep talking. I said, no, it's my turn. I gave her the dad look. I said, Christy, let's talk about mom. First of all, a few of the things that you said about mom are true. And now she's 17. She's going, cool, dad's on my side. I said, however, I want you never to talk to my wife like that ever again. And I don't think Christy had ever put that together, that she was both mom and wife, but wife to me. And I said, Christy, we've never told you this, but we are a part of what we call the transitional generation. Have we ever said this? And Christy kind of looked at me like blank. I said, so mom and dad inherit the sins of a previous generation, and you only know part of the kind of craziness from, from which we come from. And so we're definitely from dysfunctional families. You understand that. And so mom and I are trying to recover and break the chain of dysfunction instead of repeat it. And I said, and Christy, you've got to know it's not easy. In fact, it's hard. But I said, Christy, your mom is the person in my life who I've seen grow the most, and I mean that about Kathy. I said, mom starts in deficit land because of the family system. She just didn't choose to be a part of that family. She just sort of was born there. But she gets here, and I said, and mom has continued to grow, and she's like here. Christy's looking at my hands. And I said, so mom is recovering and not repeating, and it's kind of on your behalf. And I explained to her the transitional generation. I said, you inherit the sins of previous generation. Don't know if I'd ever said that to her. I said, so Christy, you get to start somewhere here in the middle, and you get to move farther than mom and I ever will, if you choose. And at that point, her eyes welled up with tears. And the reason her eyes welled up with tears was because she got it. That the sacrifice, the perseverance, if you would, was on Kathy's part, my part too. And so here's a kid who now is in the process of trying to figure out her life, but she has to understand that, you know, she's connected to family and that she needed to persevere. Somebody needed to hear that today. Maybe you came from a family, maybe a family similar to mine, maybe not. But you can recover and not repeat the sins of a previous generation. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we think about perseverance. In fact, we're going to look at a scripture that is found in the book of Hebrews 12, 1 through, 2, or 1 through 3. And it's interesting because it's one of the most famous scriptures in all of the Bible. And it's actually almost a near-perfect illustration of the gospel, of the Christian faith. So Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, I'll read to you, and then we'll kind of take it apart a little bit. It's going to kind of be a preface for where we're going today. It says, therefore, and let me stop right there. In Scripture, whenever it says therefore, why does it say therefore? This is an interesting one because in Hebrews 11, it's been talking about something, and then it says therefore, and now it's going to give you the, the, the answer in some ways. But the therefore is therefore because Hebrews 11 is about the mothers and the fathers of our faith. And I don't know about you, but there are times when I feel pretty inadequate, even as a Christian leader, and yet... The mothers and the fathers of our faith are, well, there's a prostitute, there's a murderer, there's a couple of big-time liars. I don't know if you can identify with that, but these are the people who are called the mothers and the fathers of our faith. And then we move into 12, and it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, talking about Hebrews 11, fascinating. These were not perfect people, but yet these are the mothers and the fathers of our faith. By such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything 
that hinders us. And the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. And that's what we're going to talk about, underline it, perseverance. Can we do it, even when we're weary? It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then listen to this last one, maybe for you. Consider him who endured such opposition, talking about Jesus, from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when I'm thinking about whether it be family or my faith or, or just actions work, where I, I grow weary and I don't want to lose heart. And this scripture is going to help us understand that today. Really the goal, and some of you are really young, and you might not get this, but the goal is actually to finish the race well. You know, how do you finish well? It's funny, Terry and I are in a small group on Tuesday mornings, and, and we actually went through a, a book about finishing well because of our age, probably. But I say to my kids all the time, play the movie forward. The decisions you make today will affect you for the rest of your life. I don't know that my kids ever get that, but the truth is, is that the decisions we make, the decisions about life, the decisions if you're married, about your marriage, about your kids, students, about school, education, relationships, those decisions help you finish well. I don't know about you, but I want to finish well, and this scripture will help us finish well. I'm going to ask a lot of questions this morning in a short time period, but one of the questions is this. Is, is it working? Is life working for you? Are your relationships working? Somebody says, yes, that's outstanding. Others might say, well, not exactly. Is your faith working? Is your, is your marriage working if you're married again? Relationships working? It's supposed to. And what we're going to see is, is how to do that in a, in a pretty simple way today out of an incredible scripture. Now, I've got a friend who's in South Africa, and he actually works with kids in the inner city of South Africa. He would have loved the Mexico trip. And his father lives in South Africa, but he takes tours to Tanzania to help people climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Mount Kilimanjaro is actually a goal of mine one day. It's not a Mount Everest horrible climb. I, I could never do that. But it's just a long hike. And uh, I have a friend who, on his 60th birthday with his daughter, on her 35th birthday, they, they climbed it. It's like five or six, seven days. And you know, it's just this long hike and pretty incredible. But my friend in Tanzania, or in South Africa who goes to Tanzania said this. He said, you know, when people go in groups, that if they can see the peak, they make it. They could be in lousy shape. They could be people who, you know, really didn't train for this. They could be people wearing not even the right clothes, but they make it to the peak because they see the peak, and they keep their eyes focused on the peak, and they make it. It's not easy, but they make it. But if you can't see the peak, then the groups, even people who are in good shape and, and whatnot, are ready for Kilimanjaro, they start backbiting, they get discouraged, and they, they fade. And in many ways, this scripture is about perseverance, or what we call steadfast endurance. And it's interesting because sometimes when we think about steadfast endurance or perseverance, we have to understand that many people have said this, but the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. I look at some of you young people out there, and I go, wow, you're making decisions about who you're going to marry. You're making decisions about your vocation. You're making all these decisions. And sometimes, at a certain age, we make those decisions without considering focusing on Jesus, as the scripture says. I was on a television show recently, and they said, what's the secret to your marital success, meaning you've been married for a long time? Because again, we've, we've not always been easy. We have what we call a high-maintenance marriage. We write books together on marriage, but we still have a high-maintenance marriage. And, uh, and I said, perseverance and commitment. And I think they were hoping I would say, amazing romance. Well, we have some romance. 
But really, for our marriage to last, it, was, it is perseverance and commitment. If you look at verses 1 and 2 again, it says, run the race with perseverance, and then it says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And simply, that point would be stay focused. And I would say stay focused first on your life and on your faith, and then stay focused with your family priorities. And you say, well, family, you're bringing up the family issue. Yeah, I'm going to talk about family today. Because really, one of the most important ingredients to anybody's life is family. And you say, well, I'm not around family, or my, I don't have children, I'm single, or whatever it may be. Or maybe I'm a grandparent. But the truth is, is that we focus on the priorities, the goals. We, we run with perseverance, and we, and we focus those priorities in a good way. First things first, we can't be distracted. Our friend, Terry and I have a friend named Randy, and Randy always uses the phrase, attractive distractions. Attractive distractions are not bad. They're just things that keep us from being in the center of God's will. And again, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. I love what Oswald Chambers said in a devotional book. He said, be aware, beware of anything that competes with your loyalty to Jesus Christ. It could be great stuff. I learned to surf here in Huntington Beach. My parents lived in Seal Beach. And uh, I'm not saying surfing is bad. I think it's incredible. But the truth of the matter is, is for some people, that distracts them from their loyalty to Jesus Christ. Sometimes money distracts them from their loyalty to Jesus Christ. Sometimes relationships distract us. All of those are, are fine and good, but we have to be aware of anything that distracts us, so we have to stay focused on the most important things. There's a man named Jack Hayford. He's an internationally known leader, Christian leader, and I remember a number of years ago now, I was speaking at something called the Promise Keepers Pastors Conference, and so it was about 36,000 uh, pastors, and Jack was what we called the pastor of ceremonies. So he was the guy who was like the master of ceremonies, the MC, but he was also kind of, you know, leading the thing, and there was some music going on, some worship, and I was sitting with Jack in the back in a green room, and I love asking people like this questions, and I'd known Jack a little bit, and I said, Jack, what's the secret to your leadership success? And I thought he might, you know, give me some great, you know, words of wisdom. He's been a Christian leader for 40 years. And he said, you know, Jim, it's not what I've chosen to do. It's what I've chosen not to do. I said, Jack, run that by me again. I'm just about ready to go on, and now I could care less about what I'm going to say. I'm, I'm so curious to see. What is he saying? It's not what I've chosen to do. It's what I've chosen not to do. In other words, what he was saying to me was, I kept my focus on the right things. And so it was a relationship with God. It was a relationship with his wife. It was a relationship with his kids and his grandkids at this point. Relationship on the priorities, but even good things, because sometimes we have to say no to good things in, so, in order to say yes to the most important things. We have to stay focused, stay focused with our family priorities. Somebody need to hear this today. What I want to say to you is don't bail out. You've been thinking about bailing out, and I don't know what you're bailing out on. Don't quit. You know, persevere. Again, lots of questions today. What will it take for you to sustain your faith? What will it take for you to sustain maybe a marriage relationship? What will it take for you to sustain a relationship that's more effective with your kids or here at the church? What's amazing is that you know the answer. Students, what will it take for you to, to sustain your life and finish well? What's interesting is you know the answer. I don't have to tell you what the answer is because it kind of comes into your head. And my answer may be different than your answer, but the case is, is that we've got to stay focused. And we do that by, by fixing our eyes on Jesus, by persevering. Some days are good, some days aren't. Nobody said it was going to be all great. When we sang the song about grateful, you see, 
your circumstance may not change, but your attitude can change, and that makes all the difference in the world, and, and gratefulness does that. That's another talk someday. And for some, we have to understand this. There's pain in life, friends, I'm sorry. When I became a Christian, I thought I wouldn't have pain in my life. There's pain. And you know what? It's either the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. But there's still going to be pain. Now, when I walked up here and, you know, and Terry's friend, nobody went, wow, that guy is in amazing shape. You know, probably none of you went, whoa, he's, he's buff. But I've been working out. I mean, you can probably tell it up. You three could tell it probably, right? <laughs> so these are pecs. Because you've got some. I'm not looking at her. I'm looking at him make sure we get that straight. <laughs> but so my pecs are kind of sore because I actually was pr pretty proud of myself yesterday morning, 24-hour fitness working out. But it's sore today. This is the pain of discipline. This right here is the pain of regret. Okay? <laughs> but in reality, what we're talking about today is perseverance, and it's either going to be the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Luckily for us, we don't become Christians because of discipline. We become Christians by the unmerited favor of God, the unfailing love and mercy of God. We don't have to, we just show up. But when it comes to making some decisions, it's going to be the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Now, first point is simply stay focused with your family priorities. Second one is develop the courage to change. You first, then your family. You know, a lot of times we're saying, well, if only my wife would be different, or if only my husband would be different, only my parents were different, or only if my circumstance was different. You know what? There's only one person that you can change, and that's you. You know, I've been married to Kathy for 38 years, and if I point a finger at her and want her to change, I have three fingers pointing back at me. So what I've got to be able to do is develop the courage to change. And it's interesting because Paul said to Timothy, pay attention Pay attention to your own soul. In fact, in, in 1 Timothy, and we're going to put that scripture up on the, on, the, uh, on the board here, I think. Is it coming? Didn't have it? Okay, so I'll just make it up then. It says, in, in 1 Timothy, it says, pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to yourself. And you know, that sounds so selfish. But you know what? If we don't, we're not going to develop the courage to change. Leaders, and I'm interested in helping leaders. Homewood, the organization that I work with, does four things. We build strong marriages. We help confident parents. Parents become confident, I should say. We empower kids, and we develop healthy leaders. And in this whole idea of leaders, you know, there's a couple of people. One is a guy named Bill Hybels, who's out of Chicago. He's a pastor of a big church, and he's a friend of mine. And one of the things that he says that's fascinating is he said, we all have to work on our leadership skills. All of us have leadership skills, maybe in the home, maybe in wherever. But what Bill Hybels says is that 50% of the leadership skills that we work on should be self-developed, looking inward. Gary Smalley, who's a mentor of mine, calls it self-care. And I would say that some of the most unhealthy people I know, and I, I do work with parents of teens and teens, and I would say that some of the most unhealthy parents I know are parents of teens who aren't dealing with their own stuff. And so they're so involved in their kids' lives that they're incredibly emotionally and spiritually unhealthy. And what I say to them, I wrote a book called Teenology. It's a book for parents to help understand teens, if that's possible. And I said, what you need to do is get as emotionally and spiritually healthy as you can and hold on. And so we have to learn to develop the courage to change. Again, either the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. I, I got a phone call and a woman said, could you, could you come and speak in Honolulu, Hawaii at the Blaisdell Arena? And uh, 
it's where the uh, Hawaii University of Hawaii basketball team plays, and it's an event called the Purity Code event, which is a book I wrote for kids on sex and sexuality. And what I do is I challenge kids, and challenge actually the parents to help their kids do this, to, in honor of God, my family, my future spouse, I commit to sexual purity. It's a pretty cool thing to watch kids make these commitments. Amazing, actually. They do it by um, honoring God with their body, by renewing their mind for good, by turning their eyes from worthless things. These are all scripture. That was Psalm 119. And, and then by guarding your heart. And we talk, I talk to kids about how do you learn to guard your heart. The Bible says guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. See? So she, called, she says, I said, where? And she said, uh, Honolulu, Hawaii. I said, let me pray about it. Yeah, I can go there. Yeah, I can stay. <laughs> so I'm now on a stage with 8,000 kids, and there's a band, and then there's Miss Hawaii, who is, like, beautiful, and she has a sexual abstinence story, which is phenomenal, and then there's me. So you kind of have Beauty and the Beast going. And... Um, I finish, kids come forward, and the majority of kids come and sign these cards. It's a pretty remarkable thing. Amazing, actually. It's, it's, if you've never seen something like that, it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. And um, at this point, the band's kind of taken over, and I'm down. I know that when it's over, I'll have to talk to kids for hours because of kids who are pregnant or kids who've been raped or, you know, all these, you know, you hear just when you have that many kids, it's, it's a mass unit. You have counselors and therapists and youth pastors and everybody else. But I'm down on the front row because there's a woman who I'm watching cry, and I know her. Her husband is a very well-known Christian leader who had had an affair. And so he just quietly went away. Some of you would even know him. Some in Christian leadership would know him. But he's now just kind of quietly went away because he messed up. Interestingly enough, after two years, they've been restored. It's a neat story, but this part of the story just goes, I go down there. She's crying. I'm thinking, here I am talking about, you know, sexual purity to a bunch of kids and, you know, why is she sitting there? But she's going to be in a conference that I'm at the next day in Honolulu, too. And so I walk over to her and she looks up at me and she's like, oh, I mean, any adult that sees kids do this, is, it's a phenomenal experience. And so she's like, oh, Jim. And I put my hand on her. I said, you okay? She said, oh, you probably think these tears are about my deal. I, maybe they are, she said, but really, they're kind of tears of joy with these kids making these decisions, but also I feel like God was speaking to me while you were talking, and I think I have a word from God for you. Well, that scares the bejeebies out of me. When anytime anybody says, I have a word from God you know, for you, I'm like, is my zipper down? I mean, what, what is my problem? And so she said, may I share that with you? And so I appreciated that she shared it, because some people just barge in and say that, and I said, sure. And she said something I'll never forget, and I think it's so important to this idea of perseverance. She said, Jim, I think I'm supposed to say to you, untended fires soon become nothing but a pile of ashes. And again, the band's playing and there's kids all around. I've just handed my nice pin to a kid that I know I'll never see the pin again because it's going to get passed out. And, and I said, say it again. And she said, untended fires soon become nothing but a pile of ashes. I thought, wow, that is for me. Because if I don't tend the fire within my own soul, I'm going to be a worthlessness to Kathy. I'm going to be worthless to my kids. I'm going to be worthless to the job that I have. But what many of us do is we try to work so much at, and so hard, but we sort of miss having the courage to change in our own life. In uh, Luke 12, it's a story of Jesus. You can look it up later. Jesus goes away and prays, and he comes back and hangs out with his disciples, and then he goes and does ministry. And everybody says, well, you know, that's a paragraph, but who cares? What's the bigness? Of it? Let's, let's take that apart for a minute. This is a wagon wheel. Jesus went away and prayed, and the center of the wagon wheel is, you know, right here at the center. Solitude, time with God, taking care of his own soul before he went and did ministry. 
Interesting. Then he comes back and he has what we call replenishing relationships, community with his people. He would have been enrooted. He would have been in a life group, no doubt, because he did life in community. So the, the spokes are replenishing relationships. And then he did his work. Then he did his ministry, see. For a lot of us, we burn ourselves out because we're doing all our stuff and we don't take time with solitude and we don't take time with replenishing relationships, see. You got to have the courage to change. When you have the courage to change, then you don't live in what we call crisis mode living. Crisis mode living is when you spend most of your waking moments going from thing to thing to thing, meeting to meeting, carpool, laundry, whatever it is, and then we fall into bed absolutely exhausted. We live in crisis mode and we don't do family life well. We don't do our relationship with God well when we're in crisis mode. Students live in crisis mode. Adults live in crisis mode. Well, let me explain it. You're spinning the plate of your God plate and you're spinning the plate of your marriage plate if you're married, children plate, that takes more spinning than typically these two because, you know, God seems to be doing fine on his own and your wife or husband probably needs some help, but, you know, your kids need more. And then you got your job plate, which is a heavy plate, and then you got your extended family plate and all these things, and you're looking at the God plate and it's kind of wobbly, so you try to get here on Sunday morning, you know, to spin it a little bit, but, you know, we're just kind of going like that and we're afraid that if we quit, one of the plates is going to drop and maybe one of the plates is kind of dropped. Maybe it's a child who's, you know, kind of fallen off, you know, whatever the, the proper path or whatever, see? And so you're just kind of going crazy. And when we live in crisis mode, we honestly don't have the courage to change because we're just moving from thing to thing to thing, see? So my kids went to a Christian school through eighth grade called Capistrano Valley Christian School in San Juan Capistrano. Great school, horrible parking, horrible parking. So I drop them off, Kathy picks them up. When I drop them off, if there's nobody to the left, I can make a quick left turn and get right out of the parking lot. Otherwise, I have to, to drive like a quarter of a mile through kids and, and cars and whatnot, and so I'd always try to turn left. So this particular day, I drop my kids off, love you, bye. I turn left into a, an Escalade. It's a really nice, brand new, black, shiny Escalade, and I am driving what our family called, affectionately, of course, the Loser Cruiser. It was this green, ugly van that had you know, McDonald's french fries from like the past year in the back. I mean, it was just gross. And so, you know, if my car gets hit, no big deal. It had already been hit, but, you know, this is a nice car. So I pull in, I go, oh, man, I hit their car. I didn't see him. How could you not see a big black Escalade? But anyway, I didn't. And so I look down, and I'm right here. The lady is in the passenger side. She's looking at me. She's about here, and she's not saying in the Christian school parking lot, praise God from whom all blessings flow. She's saying, <laughs> I'm really angry at you. This is a really nice car. I don't know what she's saying, but her look is saying, I hate you. And, um, and I'm saying, I'm sorry. And then I look down, and I didn't hit their car. I missed it by about that much. You ever done that, where you think you hit the car, but you didn't? I was so thrilled. So now I'm going, I didn't hit your car, but I think she's thinking I'm saying, you know, I, I, I didn't mean to hit your car or something. So she's getting angry and angry. Then I make the mistake. I look at her husband. He's driving the car. This guy is going to get out and beat me up. His veins are sticking up. He's screaming at me. Now, I can't hear what he's saying, and I'm whispering to them. Why am I doing that? I'm going, I'm so sorry. I didn't hit your car. And I'm going like this, and the more I'm doing that, the more they're thinking I'm going, I'm sorry for the big debt in your car, you know, but it's not my problem or something. I mean, it was, you know, it was, we were miscommunicating big time. And I look, at, I, I look at this guy, and I think he's going to get out of the car. Honestly, he's going to beat me up in the Christian school parking lot, and he would beat me up because he's bigger than me. And all of a sudden, I recognize them. At my church, we were going through um, a pastoral change, and so I was speaking a lot. And so I was there on Saturdays and Sundays whenever I was in town, and I was preaching, and so I was kind of like their interim 
speaker, and I, all of you sit in the same place. You are the weirdest things. I mean, at church, I mean, do, do you guys usually sit there, kind of? Yeah, okay, so, you know, there you are, okay? These people in the third service in the Sunday morning sat over there, and I recognized them. So, I thought, I know these people. It was a wave relationship. I didn't know their name, but they didn't recognize me. I had a baseball hat on. They didn't see the beautiful bald head. So I'm still saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know, kind of thing. And all of a sudden, I look at that guy again, and he lifts his hand, not in praise, but he gives me the international sign of displeasure. He flipped me off. The moment he flipped me off, he recognized me. <laughs> and he goes from this to... Pastor Jim, how are you? <laughs> so I kind of go, so sorry. He says, no problem, no problem. <laughs> I back up. They realize that I hadn't hit their car. We go on. Now, that Sunday, they're sitting over here. Our church, we'd go to the back and be with people or stand, stand up front and pray. But I said, hey, you guys, I can't do that today. I've got to go meet a couple. You know, it's an important, you know, ministry, pastoral counseling appointment. And... Um, so anyway, I walk over to him, and I just stood there, and I went, I am so sorry for cutting you off. And he goes, well, I'm sorry for, and he starts to say, flipping you off. But then he thought, it was such a quick wrist flip that maybe I didn't see it. So I helped him. I said, for flipping me off. He goes, yeah, I didn't know you saw it. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, I'm so sorry. And I said, well, I'm sorry for cutting you guys off. And, th and he told me, you know, you don't turn left right there. I know, I know. But he said, Jim, what, what happened was I was without my car, you know, my wife was grumpy. And now he flipped me off, and he's saying my wife was grumpy. And so she would, had been on his side until that moment. She's like, honey, you know. And so I'm in, you know, my wife's car. We're trying to get going. Our kids are, you know, being a hassle. And I'm sorry, it just came out. That's crisis mode living. Now, again, I, I hope that you students don't flip your parents off. I know you think about it at times. And I hope you parents don't want to flip your kids off at times, you probably think about it too, but the point being is sometimes we do that. No, not, probably not literally, but I know I turn my back from God. I turn my back on my priorities sometimes. Why? Because I don't have the courage to change because I'm living my life at too fast of a pace. I need to be able to, to examine my own life. When I'm examining my life, when I'm living not in crisis mode, there's some questions that you know, we can look at, and the questions are important questions, maybe three that I can think of. First question, do I like the person I'm becoming? Second question, is my pace of life sustainable? For me being in ministry, I often say, is the work of God I'm doing destroying the work of God in me? And I have to say that there are times when that has happened. Thirdly, am I only giving my family my emotional scraps? Why is it that I can be totally up for you? I can be totally up for a stranger, but when I come home, I'm not as connected because I'm only giving them my, my scraps, see. But I can't ask those questions when I'm not in, you know, a better place. Secondly, and, or thirdly, I mean, real, real, real quickly, is we have to be re re established replenishing relationships. Remember that? We have solitude time where we have the courage to change, but you can't change without, you know, relationships. In fact, Galatians 6.2 says, bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We weren't meant to do family alone. We weren't meant to do burdens alone. We weren't meant to do problems alone. We were meant to bear one another's burdens. We were meant to carry each other's burdens. That's why we have the church. And sometimes it's humble, but you might think, well, we're the only person or the only family that's messed up. The other people are, aren't messed up. No, they're just as messed up as you are. 
and they need to carry you, and you need to carry them. That's just life. That's the beauty of the church. It's building community. It's having replenishing relationships. And we don't do that very well, especially us guys. So, you know, Terry mentions we're in a group. We're in a group. There's five of us. We meet every Tuesday. We suffer down at a place called the Beachcomber, which is on the beach in Newport Beach, where we have breakfast every Tuesday. But I'm convinced that if I said to any of those men, there are four others, I'm, I'm in Chicago and I'm struggling. I'm struggling in a relationship. I'm struggling with, I've done something improper, whatever it is. I think they'd get on a plane and come and do that. I would for them. And when we first got together, he said we'd been together, you know, for years. Well, we have. But the interesting side to it is we started talking about politics and we started talking about, you know, basic stuff, sports, a little bit of faith things. And then one day, I remember this so distinctly. I don't know if Terry will remember this, but one of the other guys said, I'm struggling in, in my marriage. And we all jumped in and we got more open and vulnerable. And I'm a better husband and a better father because of the Tuesday morning group. I meet with another guy every six weeks. His name is John Wallace. He's the president of Azusa Pacific University. And John and I are, are close. And we ask the tough questions. Questions like, have you done anything inappropriate with a woman, even in your mind, in the last time since we've seen each other? Are you being faithful to your Bible reading? Are you being faithful to your calling with, with your wife, Kathy? Are you being faithful with the kids? And I'm a better husband and a better father and a better Christ follower because of those relationships. Those are called replenishing relationships. We have two types of people who come into our life, overgeneralization, I'm sure. Very draining people or very inspiring people. VDPs or VIPs. We all have very draining people. You just hope you're not the very draining person for the person sitting next to you. But very inspiring people. What I realize is it's easy for the very draining people to show up in my life. But I need to lean in every week to being around very inspiring people. And so do you have a peer support that helps you bear your burdens and you bear theirs? If not, then jump into Rooted, get involved in a life group, whatever it takes. Do you, every week, go into the replenishing relationship mode? Not easy. We're busy, but the model is, do we take time for our own soul? Do we have replenishing relationships? That's how we'll have the courage to change. That's how we'll stay focused. We can't do it on our own. Lastly, what I get out of this scripture, and it says it in, in verse 3, so that you will not grow weary. And another version, I love the version, so that you will not feel defeated and grow weary and get discouraged. It's a modern version. Some of us grow weary and we're discouraged. We feel defeated. But interestingly enough, how do we overcome that? We have to keep the eternal perspective. And there's an amazing scripture in 2 Corinthians, but behind that scripture is actually Paul who had been in prison and he had been beaten 39 times with this lashes that, you know, with a metal, like Jesus, with a metal um, spike. I mean, this guy had, had, had done it all. And he says, for these light momentary afflictions, those aren't exactly light momentary afflictions, but his burdens and problems were just as, as much as ours. But for these light momentary afflictions that we bear are producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. I think we do a better job of persevering when we have the eternal perspective. My mom died a number of years ago, and my dad married um, her best friend for, of 50 years. My mom and dad were married for 53 years. And, uh, and until just recently, my dad now has passed on. He actually is buried with my mom on Beach Boulevard nearby here. But uh, 
I found out this week, and yesterday I was all involved in this, is that um, Virginia, kind of his angel, and, and we love this woman who, who married my dad, and they were married for 12, 13 years until my dad died, um, it went into hospice uh, yesterday. And so I was talking with a hospice worker who, of all things, is somebody that I've trained and I know, and you know, he ends up calling me, and I go, well. But I said, how's she doing? Because he had already had a talk with her. He said, she's ready for eternity. And I went, that sounds like Virginia. The reason is because she has her life together. At 91, she's lived a good life. My dad lived in the leisure world. He, at 89 years old, um, was on a walker. He was very weak. And he fell, he broke his hip. Terry lived through this a little bit with me. And my, my dad broke his hip. And I get a call. I was away someplace. And, you know, your dad's broken his hip. When can you get to the hospital? We're going to try to decide. He's so weak, we don't know if we should do the surgery. But by the time we get there, They've decided that he's going to do the surgery. And so they did the surgery on my dad, and it actually came through it. And then they put him in Los Alamitos Convalescent Hospital and, uh, to kind of convalesce. And they said, if he doesn't get up, he's going to die of pneumonia. And he never got up. And so now we're about three weeks into this, and dad has been placed in hospice care, too. So I'm, I'm sitting with my dad, and it's just dad and me. I, I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this, but you, you show up. You get there. And most every day, in a busy schedule just like yours, I'm driving to Los Alamitos to sit with my dad. And it was kind of just his presence. So now I'm sitting there, and it's just dad and me, and a woman bounces in. And I mean bounce, totally radiant, little tiny Filipino lady who's the physical therapist and said, Bob, it's time for, for physical therapy. I have a youth ministry background, and so I have a little bit of a kind of a, I'm kind of laughing at that, kind of going, yeah, right, he's really going to do physical therapy. This is a guy who can't even get into the bedpan. And... Um, but I wanted to see what would happen. So dad, who had a great attitude by then, starts to stand up. Well, at this point, as he kind of tries to get out of bed, he's going to fall out of bed. So I go to help him, and the lady goes, and she kind of gets it. So she now says to him, Bob, how did you break your hip? My dad looks up at him and says, or her, I mean, and says, it was a motorcycle accident. <laughs> she looks at me, and I just go, I don't think so. He was in his walker, and he fell, you know, kind of thing. And then he proceeded to tell a story that was actually absolutely true that he had, my brother, 47 years ago, but he's acting like it happened, you know, a few weeks ago. Uh, 47 years ago, my brother had a motorcycle and it was in our patio in our backyard. And we didn't have a gate in the backyard. It was an open fence thing. And so my dad had always wanted to ride this motorcycle. So he found the key, got in it. My brother's not home, goes down the backyard, across the street to a Christian science church, which was across the street from us. And my dad is telling the lady that he did loop-de-loops, figure eights and loop-de-loops. I don't have any idea what he really meant, but he was on the motorcycle. And then he comes back across the street, is going to go up through our, our backyard into our patio and you know, let it go and probably not even tell my brother that he had used his motorcycle. But my dad didn't know how to do the break right, so he went through our patio glass door. And so when, how I know this story is when I was in about second grade, I show up at home. Mom was always there to greet me. No mom, but my brother's motorcycle is in the front room with broken glass and blood and, and gas and oil, and it smelled really bad. And there's his motorcycle, so I was like just standing there when my aunt came to kind of take care of you know, little Jimmy. But my dad told that story, and she kind of laughed. Bob? Do you have any other children? She's just trying to make conversation with me. He said, well, yes, I have four sons. This is Jimmy, and then I have Bobby, Billy, and Ronnie. He used their, the, our little kid names. And he said, and I'm proud of all of my sons. And I went, oh, my gosh. You know, I'm a grown man, and when my dad said he was proud of all of us, 
my eyes filled up with tears. Now, I could understand him being proud of me. I'm the youngest, okay? But the other guys. And then I thought to myself, how like God to be proud of us, even with our imperfections. And my brothers, three, all three of them getting a divorce in the same year. And a couple of them are alcoholics, and they haven't lived a, a great life, and neither have I. And yet, he's proud of us? And I thought, how like God? God is proud of you. You're his children. He's not some distant God who's pointing a big finger at you. There's an eternal perspective here. He's proud of you. You're his child. He's carrying your picture in his wallet. Bob, are you married? Well, I was married to his uh, mother, Donna, for 53 years, and now I'm married to Virginia. Actually, Virginia was Donna's best friend, and she's a wonderful woman. And I'm looking forward to being in heaven soon because I'll see his mom, and I really am looking forward to being with God. I've lived a good life. I have no regrets. And I'm sitting there going, he has no regrets. I have regrets. I wanted to say something, but she, he just kept talking. I said, so now I'm married to Virginia, and she's been beautiful and an angel and wonderful. And I think the lady was kind of looking around, did Dad really think he was married to an angel or, you know, whatever? You know, Virginia wasn't there right at the time. The woman couldn't handle it. I mean, she's the physical therapist. She hears stuff, but now she has tears in her eyes, and something had touched her. And so she walked out, and she kind of went like this, and a little tiny gal, and she put her hand up on my shoulder and said, you are blessed. I don't see many people like that at the end of their lives. And uh, so I couldn't go back in. I was too emotional. I walked around for a bit. And I came down. I sat next to Dad when I went back in. I said, Dad, you, you said you were proud of us boys. And I wasn't looking for another, I'm proud of you. And he said, I'm so proud of you guys. So proud of you. And again, I thought, how like God. And then I said, Dad, you said you're looking forward to being in heaven. I get that, but you said you had no regrets. And he goes, well, it's more your business than mine, but meaning, you know, you're in the ministry business. But, but you know, I'm forgiven, right? He's at the end of his life. I'm forgiven, right? Well, yeah. And I've asked Jesus to come into my life now. Yeah, well, you did it a little late, Dad, but you did. <laughs> he said, well, then I'm looking forward to being with God. I thought to myself, oh, my gosh. He's got it straight. You know when people die? There's a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She's passed away now. She lived in Laguna Beach. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said that whether you were Christian or not Christian, at your death, you have two things. One is a right relationship with God, even if you'd walked away from him. And the other is a right relationship with your family. My dad got that. I guess what I'm saying is if we're going to persevere, we need an eternal perspective. And we don't want to wait until we're on some deathbed but it's a right relationship with God and it's a right relationship with those we love. What's it gonna take? Well, I wish I could give you a magic wand, I can't. But I can say it's gonna take perseverance. And when you do that, you will finish well. And the legacy of faith will continue. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you so much for these men and women. Thank you so much for Mariners Huntington Beach. I pray God that as we even sing this last song, that you would be present in our minds and in our hearts, that you would challenge us to be all that you desire us to be. And for some of us, perhaps we needed to make a, a new decision today, a decision to follow you or a decision not to bail, a decision not to lose heart. And you've given us the answer how to do that in our hearts and in our minds. And so bless our journey 
Help us to make the right decision that will affect us for a, for a lifetime. And we know what it is. It's in our heart. Now give us the strength to do it. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen. amen.